0: Questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? I'm feeling fully foolish, spending my life on a message. I look around and I wonder ever if I heard it right.
1: Welcome to the A Millennial Podcast, where we have theological conversations for today's world. I'm your host, Amy Montrebotti, coming to you live from Dayton, Ohio former home of the Midget Theater. Yes, I know it's impolite to use that word for those with forms of dwarfism, but that was the actual name of an early movie theater in Dayton, a true Nickelodeon where you paid a few cents to watch a film. It received its name because the manager was a little person by the name of Sherman Potterf. With his average-sized brother, Benjamin, Sherman leased a building downtown and held a grand opening in 1913 for a Home of Quality Photo Plays. The slogan that was used in advertisements was, quote, "Nothing small about the midget, only the manager." Unquote. Of course, in our present era, it's hard to imagine a little person naming their theater with a derogatory slur, but in that time it was evidently not considered derogatory enough to bother Sherman. The brothers sold their theater business in 1917, and today the building stands in a state of disrepair but ready for a new buyer who can fix it up and make it a home for a restaurant, store, or artist studio. I think it's kind of awesome that a 100 years ago, someone who looked different was able to be the manager of a business and also serve as a touring performer for another company. If the world looks down on you, friends, don't let it get you down. You can accomplish great things. It is perhaps appropriate that I open with an anecdote loosely related to the arts, because my guest today is a talented performer, John Guerra. He has released albums individually and in connection with his wife, Valerie and his work is intended to draw people into meditation upon spiritual truths. John's first solo album, Little Songs, displayed his desire to offer up little songs to the Lord as prayers. One of the songs off his most recent album, Citizens, is the theme song for this podcast. But my connection to this couple goes back a very long way. Valerie and I were friends growing up. We attended the same church and school. Our families went on trips together and were a regular presence in each other's lives. It's been really special to watch God bring Valerie and John together and allow them to make beautiful music. As you know, if you're a regular listener, I like to open each show by reading a scripture passage that is relevant to the day's discussion. Today, I'll be reading Psalm 33, verses 1 through 5. Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is right, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. It's so wonderful to think that the Lord created music and has ordained that we should use it to praise him. Now let's head on to the interview and find out how John is using his musical talents for the glory of God. I apologize in advance for the poor audio on my end of the conversation.
2: And I'm here with Christian recording artist John Guerra, whose song Citizens is the theme song of this podcast. He was educated at Moody Bible Institute for his bachelor's degree. And after that, he formed the indie progressive rock group Milano with his wife or maybe future wife at the time and a few of their friends. He was a member of the Vertical Worship Band. He's toured with Amy Grant and Vince Gill's Christmas at the Ryman in 2015 and 2016. He formed the group Pray Tell with his wife, Valerie, in 2017, and they worked on a number of things over the years. And the two of them composed additional music for the film A Hidden Life that came out just within the past year or two here. His albums include two that he released with Milano, then in 2013, he released the album "Hugh" under the name uh, Jaguar. Jaguar, is that how you always, I pronounce it, John? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Jaguar. And uh, then he had his first uh, EP, which was Glass, in 2014. His full-length album, Little Songs, in 2015. Also in 2015, he released It's Almost Christmas with his wife, Valerie. In 2017, he released an EP called Working Demos 2, And he's made various contributions over the years to the albums of the Vertical Worship Band. In 2018, uh, he and Valerie, as the group Pray Tell, released It's Almost Christmas Volume 2. And then last year, he released the album Keeper of Days. And you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at IamJohnGara and on Facebook at Music. Well, John, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Amy. Good to see you. Well, I know that recently you've moved from Chicago, where you were for many years, to Austin. So the first question I naturally have to ask you is, who has the better food scene, Chicago or Austin?
0: Oh, man, that is a that's a tricky one. Um, I got to say I'm partial to the Chicago culinary scene. Chicago does a few things very, very, very well. Austin does many things pretty well. Mm. Austin has amazing tacos, as you would guess, being so close to the border. But what's cool about Austin food that I found to be actually quite surprising and delightful is there's a lot of fusion. So we there's this place that we discovered just a couple weeks ago called Tea House 101, and it's a Korean taco place and well, amazing. <laughs> it is it is ama- i mean turkey and korean beef mixed with really hot like mexican style salsas i mean it's just there's really nothing like it um but chicago i don't know maybe it's because we were there for 10 years and the nostalgia is just hard to get over chicago is just whether it's deep dish you know the kind of the people's portillos or the super kind of niche hipster dive cocktail bar. It just feels like it's just feels like I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard for me to betray my allegiance to Chicago food.
2: Is it really pizza or is it a casserole? Tell me that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It's a cheese casserole with a little bit of bread.
2: Well it tastes pretty good, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Getting down to the main reason you're here, uh the past year or two have brought some big transitions for you. As I alluded to, Uh, you and Valerie became parents, you moved from Chicago to Austin, and you released your new album, Keeper of Days. What motivated your decision to move down to Texas? And how have you changed as a musician and a person during this period?
0: Uh, So we decided to move because, well, back up now, four years ago, we met a direct the a director named Terrence Malick who was one of my favorite directors and we met him through a really good friend of ours and through the course of you know a few just random opportunities that were kind of afforded to us through that relationship and really really just the kindness of God we were able to start working with him for a hidden life for the a film that was released this past year and we were flying back and forth from Chicago to Austin quite a bit And when that movie wrapped up, we were invited to work on his next film. And he's based, like I said, he's based in Austin. And um, we thought, well, we're going to have a baby. We're going to move out of our apartment. We felt like we are at a time in our lives where we we were up for kind of a transition. Um, We'd been in Chicago for so long. And we felt like some of the seasons that we were in and both vocational seasons and maybe ministry – some of that stuff was we just felt kind of released from and felt like God was going to be closing the doors and just end, just ending a season for us. And We thought, well, now's as good a time as ever. Why don't we, I've got this thing in Austin. I'm releasing an album. I can release an album from anywhere because I'm just going to be based wherever I am and then touring. Why don't we just move to Austin, work on this movie and try to escape the winter for the length of the movie and Winslow, our baby girl, can just uh, be raised in Texas for a bit. So we decided to do it. And we got to Austin, I think about like 15 days before the lockdown, before everything shut down. So it was, you know, perfect timing for making friends and, you know, getting to know a town. So, you know, we we weren't able to move into any sort of housing situation. So we actually, our dear friend who is down here gave us his place for as long as it took for us to find a place. And he moved in in a friend's guest room talk about kindness of a friend and yeah because of COVID it was a little you know it was a little slow going but we found a place that and that's kind of perfect for us and moved in a few months later and yeah we've been here for about a year how's how have we changed oh my goodness haven't we all changed this past year haven't we been affected I I think probably the biggest thing for me has been has been a, a little bit of a personal perspective change I was planning on being on the road supporting that new album touring for at least half of the year, and all of that got canceled. And it was a big deal um, personally because, you know, a lot of our majority of our income at the time came through touring. While that was – it was definitely like a bit of a scramble, like, okay, let's figure some other things out. God was insanely kind to us, and, you know, we were always – every month was, was great, and he took care of us. But also, I I just I can't believe how quickly I would have traded the first year of Winslow's life for just a handful of shows, and and I mean that with almost like a with almost a bit of a like fearful trembling, because I I now I think it takes us all a little bit of time to adjust to the vocation to the new vocation of parenthood and of being a mother or a father. Um, some people maybe quicker. Some people some people are looking forward to it from the time they like. Fifteen, I just can't wait to be whatever. That was never me. That was never my wife. And we love our baby girl so much. For me, as just a dad, I feel like I I've been given the chance to grow into my vocation of fatherhood this year in a way that I would have never been able to, um, just because of the restraints of my other vocation, which is mm-hmm. making art for God and you know the necessary touring that goes along with that. So that's probably the biggest thing for me, and it's you know it's a, it's a daily reminder because you can come to terms with your vocation both in like a grateful way with a a way that kind of you're sort of following joy and pleasure the way maybe you and I do with writing or do with music. There's obviously toil that goes along with it, but it's like we're, we're following, you know, it's kind of the Eric Liddell. Like I feel God's pleasure when I write and when I finish a song and, and there is that certainly with fatherhood, but then there's also the humbly submitting to, okay, it's, 6.15, 615 and she's not supposed to be up for another hour, but she's up. So here we go. This is life. And there's there's a holiness I think that comes through just like an acceptance of that as like, no, no, this is this is actually God requiring something of me now. This isn't this isn't just something that's interrupting my schedule. This is actually the Lord, yeah, calling me through the voice of a little baby in the other room. I don't yeah, I definitely wouldn't have had that perspective a year ago, I probably would have waxed eloquent about some something that had nothing to do with actual fatherhood. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I very much understand because, as you know, my husband and I have also become parents in this past year, and he was <laughs> expecting that he'd spend a couple weeks of vacation at the beginning to be home with me, and then he'd have to go back to work, and as it turned out, he went back to work for two weeks, and then he's been working from home ever since, so... Yeah he's been here for a lot of our son Thomas's growing up over this first year that he just wouldn't have been, I mean, he would have seen him in the evenings and on the weekends and everything, but it's different because now every time he goes to the bathroom, he can just pop his head in and say hello and yeah. whatever is happening. And it does really cause you to reflect in different ways. And then for me, becoming a mother, like you said, with the, artistic process such as it is with the writing you know sometimes you'll you'll put the baby down for a nap and you're like okay you know maybe i'll get an hour here baby, and exactly. you have enough time to make yourself some tea and sit down and you know write one page and all of a sudden the baby's up and you're like, you are want <laughs> something up for another half hour you're like, oh too bad you know and yeah, exactly. uh i have really had to Check my attitude a lot of times and say, hold on, what is the most important here? Is it right. this stupid page that I'm writing? Or if I said, Well, it's just because you know your expectation was one way and then it got oh. taken it another way. But man, there's probably nothing on earth that reveals your own selfishness to you as much as becoming a parent. I mean, becoming a wife or a husband certainly does that to a certain extent.
1: Right. But
2: even with a wife or a husband, you know, they're usually respectful of some of your free time and some of your, you know, (laughs) giving you time to work on your process, you know, because if for nothing else, then they want their own free time as well. But, you know, kids, when they need you, they just need you. So I think, uh, you know, certainly God has designed all these seasons in life to teach us so much about himself. And I'll just say on a personal note as well, if, Karen Malik ever said, can you just drop everything and work on this movie with me? I would be very tempted to say yes as well. So, <laughs> it will never happen for me, but that it happened for you, I could understand why it you know, seems like a pretty great opportunity. So, You and your wife, Valerie, have worked together a lot on your music over the years, as I was mentioning in the introduction. I suspect that would be easier for some married couples than others, so... How do the two of you make your collaboration work?
0: So we met collaborating. Somebody invited us to play music together in college, and she was playing violin, I was playing guitar. And as the story goes, I asked her if she would like to work on some of my songs, and it was kind of a ploy to just be able to get some alone time with her without, you know, I didn't have the courage to just outright say, will you go out with me? So I had the little sneak attack of working on music. I also didn't want to work on music. She's actually, she was an incredible musician, still is. And so I think our relationship, you know, from day one was always kind of working on things together. And then we were in bands and then we did long distance, which felt like a kind of collaboration of schedules and like right, you know, before we got married. And yeah, I don't know that, that, that piece I'm grateful it's never it's never been too too difficult. I think we're both we both really enjoy i guess projects and working on things long term and we both enjoy being very scrappy and working through the night to get something done and there's never one pulling the other along and being like, Oh we gotta you know we're both just kind of we we just enjoy, yeah, I guess being scrappy and maybe even a little entrepreneurial, so that that feels that feels like a gift to us. And probably the biggest collaboration is obviously Winslow, our daughter, at this point. And um it's wild how many things carry over from whether you know collaborating on a tour, on a concert, on an album, on a movie. It's just yeah, it feels it feels very, very sweet to have to have, feel like there's we have a partner in each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, I'm so glad that that's been able to work because it's produced such great fruit. And as you say, has now produced a daughter as well. But um, certainly, you know, I'm sure I I try to think, what would it be like if my husband and I were, you know, doing the same (laughs) job together? And I think, you know, on a certain level, I'm sure we can make it work because we just know each other so well and we know how to handle each other's moods. But on another level, I'm like, well, I, I don't know if we can make that work. Maybe it yeah. would be too much. So. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Maybe we'll see if God ever gives us a chance to uh, investigate yeah. if that works or not. <laughs> I think for now we'll stick to our separate spirit. Right. Um, your song, Citizens, which is the theme song of this podcast, addresses the issue of immigration by comparing it to the way that Christ invites us into his kingdom and makes us citizens of it. In addition to this broader message, it's clear that you're also communicating something about how Christians should engage politically. Could you talk about what inspired you to write this song and what you hope to communicate through it?
0: Yeah. So what inspired the song really was it was a feeling. So all of my songs typically start with, with like a state of mind or a state of heart that I then try to figure out through my songs. Very few of them start with, this is what I want to communicate, this is this is my thesis, and then I go. It's very much um, letting this song tell me what it wants to be and sort of guiding it through um, the grid of does this lyric that I just wrote or does this melody with this lyric seem, I guess, consistent with the experience that I'm having as a person with regards to this issue or this experience. With that song in particular, it was a period of years 20, I would say probably 2015 through 2017. And this had been coming to a head for a while where it felt as though political allegiance was beginning to uh, usurp, I guess, allegiance to Christ. Or at least it, it seemed to me that in our churches and, you know, and I, I around that time I was touring quite a bit. So I was I probably seeing a hundred evangelical churches a year um for a couple of years at a time and i was noticing just sometimes very explicitly like from you know the stage or whatever but mostly in conversations with people either after the concert or before the concert or just out to eat anytime politics would come up there was just this tinge of what what seemed to me like self righteous vitriol or like a hatred towards anybody that was really disagreeing or anybody that was democrat or it, it felt like what's going on here like at first you know it's kind of funny somebody says a little jabby comment but after a while it's like every time politics comes up it's just like this other thing takes over and it's like how do we feel justified in ha- in having this posture towards our even if these people are our enemies let's say best case scenario these are our enemies how, how, where in the world do we find yeah where do we find the backing to yeah, self-justification to, to feel much less act this way towards people that are politically different than us. And oftentimes it was through the guise of, well, Western civilization is at stake. You know, it was through the guise of, well, if we don't do this, if we don't make these alliances, if we don't, then, uh, you know, the the country's going to hell in a, bas- a handbasket. Or it was just these very, very lofty ideals and these re- really – Um, It was it was moral. I realized that a lot of people were were saying this is a moral issue. Therefore, morally, I'm obligated to make these allegiances and make and take this kind of stance and take this posture. You know, it got to the point where friends, close friends, people that I probably would have had in my wedding had I known them when I got married, Mm -hmm. fellow worship leaders, pastors at my church, were just outright getting kind of behind what what felt like a nationalistic. Christ, you know, Christian nationalism is being thrown around a lot right now, mm-hmm. but the seeds of that have been growing for the for the past several years, and I just, I, I felt it, when it, when I felt my friends not really, you know, not really seeing, or not really, uh, <laughs> I guess, having any issue with this kind of discourse or this kind of political engagement, I, I just, I got really sad. I got really kind of troubled but and angry, but underneath that, it was like, what? Like, I thought we... <laughs> You know, I thought we were all. I, didn't we all grow up together? Like, didn't we all? Didn't we all agree that this is secondary? That this is actually secondary to to another kingdom? I thought we were on the same page here. And I was also going to a church at the time, and my pastor joined Donald Trump's Evangelical Council of Pastors. So he was a pretty prominent leader at the time. He's no longer in ministry. Uh, my former pastor, but and that was kind of like, wait, what? You know, what's what's going on here? Take all that and then combine it with, uh, my wife is a social worker and we collaborate a lot, like we just talked about, but some something that we don't collaborate in is kind of, she, she spent almost a decade working with refugees in Chicago and working with inner city schools and starting music groups for victims of trauma, um, refugee victims of trauma in Chicago. And when you work with uh, people in that socioeconomic spot in our country, you get rewired rewired a little bit and you don't, you can't really tolerate the the blanket characterizations of people in that spot in life. You can't really tolerate that. And when you feel that one candidate or one kind of perspective stereotypically kind of characterizes people in that spot in that way, it just becomes very distasteful. So that was kind of everything that was going on around the time. And it all kind of bubbled up in prayer in January of 2017. And my process as a writer and as a a songwriter, I, I feel called to make art for God and to God. So I feel less called to kind of call Christians out or to be preacher or shake people by the collar. I feel more called to vicariously experience the world and my faith and then bring that experience back to God in a way that hopefully other Christians can join in with and through. And I, I just call that devotional music. I call my, my songs devotional songs for that reason. So this was kind of like the first time I'd ever brought those questions and those feelings and and that confusion and that anger and that sadness and that really honest, like, I'm just confused here because I, am I wrong? Like, I'm happy to be wrong, but just please God, like help me understand what's happening here. um, when it feels like you know, the embassy of heaven, which is the church, is somehow no no longer the embassy of heaven. It feels like it's the embassy for something else. And I guess I use that analogy because I, first of all, that's just kind of what came out naturally. And I always try to pay attention to the what sort of comes from the subconscious. But I kind of wanted it to be a little bit of a transgressive rendering. I, you know, the the parables in their own day and age, in their own context, were were pretty transgressive. You know, they were pretty culturally transgressive in terms of what christ was encouraging people to consider both about him and about god and it it uh yeah it felt appropriate for the song so that's where that song kind of came from
2: well thanks for sharing a lot of the background about that and i'll just share with you a little bit about why i chose that song to be the theme of this podcast just besides the fact that i like the idea of using something for your music but because I know you and I really love your music and also just the even apart from the words the musical line of that song works so well as a little brief you know snippet into the podcast but I have been going on a similar journey you know over the past few years and you know this is called a, a millennial podcast and I think think that a lot of Christians of the millennial generation are going through this same circumstance of being raised in evangelicalism and a certain culture that in many ways has also been linked to a certain set of political values.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Not many of which, you know, I haven't rejected. Uh, and you know, just for example, uh, a lot of aspects of the pro-life movement, I'm still considering myself very much pro-life. And I, you know, so because of that, there are certain elements of the progressive political agenda that are just kind of anathema (laughs) anathema to me for that reason. But uh, at the same time, seeing really troubling things happening in the other direction and a lot of hypocrisy, I think, is, the big thing, seeing the way people talked in the nineties versus how they're talking now, the same people right, right? and seeing, yeah, people you grow up with the kinds of things they're posting on social media, you know, crazy conspiracy theories and stuff that seems to show not a lot of trust in God's sovereignty and seems to suggest an allegiance more to the kingdom of this world than, <laughs> The kingdom of God. And while not in any way putting myself forward as a supreme example of righteousness, because it's possible to get very self-righteous in the other direction as well, you know, feeling self-righteous in comparison to the quote-unquote self-righteous people. um, (laughs) I feel that in general, if Christians ever start feeling too Mm -hmm. at home in any one political location or with any one political party something maybe is wrong because
0: Mm -hmm.
2: our ultimate longing and desire should be for a perfect king who is jesus christ and no human being is ever going to be able to fill those shoes so we should be able to pick out flaws and places where human beings are coming up short and that doesn't mean we're being cynical or hypercritical it just means that we realize that no human being can <laughs> fill the shoes of jesus christ so we need to be careful and remember what the bible says to put not our faith in princes and mm-hmm. so i appreciate what you saw because it was clear that you were wrestling with a lot of these things and like you i don't have any perfect answers at this point point. and mm-hmm. yeah sometimes i wonder if i'm wrong or i hope that i'm wrong <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Events have not really suggested to me that I'm wrong on many occasions in this regard, especially recent events. So uh, I appreciate you talking about that. And I, I think it does, so many people I've talked to who are of this generation are feeling the same way, very confused by wanting to carry on that way of a Christian way of thinking about politics. But being concerned about maybe a, a wider variety of issues or at least not wanting to so demonize the other side that we can't even have a conversation anymore. So, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, moving on, uh, you've been involved in performing music in several different settings uh, for Sunday worship gatherings and performance with other Christian artists in completely secular settings and then recording for private listening. How does your mindset shift when you're performing in those different circumstances, particularly um, Christian versus secular, or when you're performing actually in a worship service versus uh, in a concert or something of, along those lines? Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, it shifts quite a bit. Um, all of those are so, well. Some people have two mindsets. Some people say you just do your thing; doesn't matter who's in the crowd. I'm I'm a little bit more. I guess I feel that. My job is to kind of facilitate connection, at least generally. Sunday morning worship maybe is, a, well, maybe it's a version of that, um, facilitating a connection with God between all the people. You know, a passion of mine and hope of mine is that my music would be palatable to the degree that it makes sense to be palatable without losing its its essence. Um, it would be palatable to people who don't share my beliefs or share my faith and and by that i mean i i guess i try to be as sincere and sincerely um devoted to god in a way without kind of the without using christianese for instance or without appealing to the lowest common denominator ways of connecting with the crowd making some kind of bible joke or you know some Awana joke something that would be very niche that's made that mistake, I think, a few times early on. And then I found out that there was people in the crowd that had come to our concert from, who'd heard us from Pray Tell, which is kind of our main, our kind of our secular band, I guess, uh, our non-Christian devotional music. Somebody had heard us at a club and then come and seen us at a church because they heard we were coming back to town. And I kind of code switched a little bit. And uh, they were in town and I, I, something in my spirit felt like, man, I don't know what I did. I say something that maybe you know I wouldn't have said at, the, at a different context, and um, I don't. I don't think I necessarily did. I didn't regret, you know, I didn't say anything that I think I needed to feel bad about. But it was more like I should really just try to find that middle ground as much as I can to try to speak to speak to everyone uh, that I know is going to be listening. But, you know, naturally that changes. When I'm As a worship leader, I feel very much like I'm, my job is to kind of bring a little bit of the aesthetic, emotional timbre to the liturgy, whatever that liturgy is. I go to a little bit more of a liturgical church now here in Austin, a PCA church, and, you know, it's a pretty—everything is in service of the liturgy, really, and, and the sermon, and it's beautiful. I, I really enjoy it. Obviously, when I'm in a club— or like a non-Christian venue, I will I will try to just be in that setting what I'm supposed to be, which is entertaining and sincere, and if people come up to me afterwards, which they often do, and say, hey, that song you sang called Stained Glass Windows, tell me more about that. And I remember chatting with a girl who was very, she'd had several drinks by the time she was talking to me in San Francisco about Stained Glass Windows and how much that song meant to her and she didn't know why. And, and it was just, it was awesome. I felt very much like, this is, this is beautiful. This is what, this is what it's about.
2: Are there any Christian figures who have particularly influenced you in your spiritual life or books and music that have been especially inspirational for you?
0: Yeah, I would say, um, you know, poets actually influenced me more than musicians or songwriters. Um, Practically, I love, you know, I love old, sixties folk like Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel, very I love wordy folk music. But in terms of spiritual and artistic influence, George Herbert, the seventeenth century priest and poet from England, he has a book of poetry called The Temple, which I've, you know, read cover to cover at least dozens of times. I mean it's I don't go a week without reading it at least a poem. And the style is can be a hair clunky; you just kind of have to click into that style a little bit. Um, he's a contemporary of John Donne, and uh it's just astounding, both ideas wise structurally, the way he plays with the English language. but he was a pastor, and he wrote his poems, I guess when he wasn't doing pastoral things and he died before any of his poems were published, and uh he's one of the most revered poets in the english language now and something about him working on his poems to god this like masterwork of english poetry in absolute obscurity and then dying before they're published is a very beautiful story to me and and then seeing the vibrancy and just the just absolute burning with the love of god (laughs) yeah it's enormously inspirational to me so I i had to pick one i would say george herbert
2: Well, thank you for that recommendation. I'm going to have to go out and (laughs) read some of his poems. And uh, yeah, that's a good point. I think about, you know, maybe even a good American example would be someone like Emily Dickinson, who was virtually unknown during her life. And then afterwards, I mean, she wasn't maybe as much of a strong Christian as George Herbert was, but it does sort of remind you that, we can't always know how the different things we do in our life are going to affect eternity or affect right. future generations. And sometimes we think the things we do that get a lot of attention are the important things when actually there are things that seem more mundane to us that actually are things God's going to use a lot more long term. So, uh, yeah. thank you. That's interesting to hear. I always like to hear how people have been influenced by those who have gone before you know because knowing how i personally have been influenced in much the same way by other writers it's, it's yeah. you learn a lot about people when you find out who their influences are yeah um we've mentioned a couple of times that you were recently able to contribute some music for the film a hidden life from director terrence malick how did you come to be involved in that project you talked a little bit about it but maybe yeah. you could give us a bit more explanation and what was it like to work on something for a film
0: So like I said, um, it was a connection through a dear friend of ours, and we really had no business working on music for a movie, but they were looking for some very particular type of music, and we were able to kind of deliver that for them. And really what we contributed mostly was uh, reductions, what were called shadows, so like uh, orchestral reductions, so like large pieces by Bruckner or... Buck or, you know, you name it, we would take those large scale orchestra pieces and make them small single duo or trio violin pieces. And the process was basically it was very iterative and experimental and just trying a lot of things. We must have recorded we must have recorded two and a half hours of music. Not all of it, obviously not all of it made it. But the process of trying it and then seeing it behind footage and then getting feedback from Malik and the editors was just insanely fun. I mean, it was so different for us. And we were flying to and forth from Austin and going into the, to the office to see how the music was working. And some of it was not working at all. And some of it was like, whoa, that really brings it to life. So, it, you know, we're, we're doing that same thing with this new movie. And it's just it's mainly mainly very 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 fun
2: well um you know i've seen a few of his movies and it was a real delight to be able to go see that one in the theater and first of all i mean it's such an incredible film i'd encourage anyone who hasn't seen it uh if you can if you can sit for three hours it's really (laughs) it's really worth it i mean his his films are always so contemplative and yeah. he doesn't rush. He, d- he lets you sit and think about things. And it seems like particularly I'm thinking now about the film he had done previously, uh, the tree of life. And yeah. then with this one In both of those, and I'm sure in some of his other films, the pieces of music that he chooses to bring in, in addition to the score and the score for the film was written by, the great film composer James Newton Howard, but mm-hmm. then you know he always he brings in as a d- director he brings in classical pieces and other yeah. things that it seems like he himself has such a great appreciation for music and is very particular about which pieces he wants wants to bring in to help tell his story. So yeah, I just thought it was so awesome that you were able to work with him because uh, even before seeing that film, I already you know had some knowledge of. Uh, him as a director and the fact of how important music was to his films. So,
1: yeah. oh, uh, so
2: any clues as to the, or do I need to go to IMDB to find out what the next movie is?
0: about? <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> so this next one um, right now, it's called the last planet. And it's, uh, and this is all public knowledge. It's, um, it's a film about Christ and Peter actually so it's a it's a period piece um, about Christ through the eyes of Peter and uh i it's just very, very tremendous that's all I can say. The main editor, yeah lives very close to us and is a good friend of ours and a few nights ago we got to go over and just see a bunch of stuff that he was working on we have a we have him and another person from the movie and a couple of people from the film we do dinner with everybody like every Friday night mm. and after dinner last Friday we went up and got to see some footage and it's just, it's cool. It's um, yeah. It'll be a long time though. And it'll probably be long, but. it That's be- okay.
2: I mean, especially if you have to wait a long time for it, you don't want it to be only 90 minutes long, <laughs> yeah, totally. but uh, yeah. So I'll be looking forward to that whenever it's coming out. I'll- People often look to Christian music artists as spiritual role models, for better or for worse. Do you think this is fair, and what responsibility do Christians in the performing arts have in this regard?
0: No, I mean, I don't think it's fair. I mean, I don't think it's uh, fair. That's an interesting descriptor. I think it's like a necessary evil of just the, we live in a really weird time where celebrity just permeates everything just the the celebrity dynamic and whether that's oh my goodness i saw the bachelorette at starbucks and you feel whatever you feel it's like that that is just so dumb and just has nothing to do with life yet it with with the things that really you know matter in life yet it kind of permeates everything I think probably there's a little bit of responsibility that comes with just being aware of that. I have, you know, a, a good number of people that listen to my music at this point in my career and understanding that and seeing that for what it is, trying to, I guess, dismantle the, or I guess reject the sort of maybe deference that I might get in certain situations. I I, I actively try to kind of fight against that to the best of my knowledge. And then seeing that, Seeing it as a little bit of a, for better, for worse, it is a responsibility that, you know, maybe there's a 14-year-old kid like me, like I was when I was 14, and the way I looked up to my heroes or whatever, or heroes, my musical heroes, I guess, um, and seeing that as as a very weighty thing. You know, I, whether it's legitimate or not, or whether it's, you know, when we hear about people who fall from ministry because of some moral thing, I mean, it just it It has ripple effects whether it should or not, and realizing that to whatever small degree there's probably some stranger out there that if I were to really if I were to really i guess betray my message or my perceived message it would it would have ripple effects in ways that I don't even realize, and not that that's why I don't do certain i mean hopefully I, I want to live a certain way because of. What it means for God and for my immediate family and friends, but I do take that seriously. I do take that, just because I, I've been hurt in that way from people that I've looked up to that have then disappointed me in, in pretty serious ways. But I also think that listeners need to realize that Christian artists are, and performing artists especially, you know, it's a, it's a lot of entertainers out there. It's it's an industry, and people get into it because they can make a buck and mm-hmm. it's not always all not always bad some people are good at enter- you know Christian enter- entertainment too i guess i mean it, if i had it my way there would probably be no christian entertainment but you know <laughs> thank goodness i'm not in charge but just people to realize that um you know they're they're and we are i guess not not always as pure as we'd like to be i suppose but but i do think there is a responsibility whether or not it's we all have influence, guess, and I think influence is a responsibility, however, however small.
2: Yeah, I, th- I really appreciate that answer because I-, I think that the issue goes two ways. There's an importance for those who are in any kind of position of spiritual influence, and for better or for worse, being a Christian musician or a Christian writer or a you know a famous pastor, you do have some of that influence. So there's a responsibility to live up to the values that you're pushing. But on the other side, people also need to understand that we don't we're not to put people on this kind of pedestal for where we think of them no longer as well kinda of like I was talking about earlier with politicians and no longer as fallible human beings but as some kind of, you know, right. superhero or something. I mean we need to realize that and I think it's clear in a lot of your music that you're a person who's asking a lot of these spiritual questions, just the same as everybody else. Yeah. And the point of the artist is not, you know, to give people an example of how to be perfect, but maybe to teach people how to question well, to invite people to come alongside them in the spiritual journey. And I, I think that your music does a really good job of that, but it, it's something that I would be curious to ask any Christian artist, just because I think there is a lot of pressure from people's expectations. Uh, and then you do see famous you, you'll hear about some christian artists from your youth who now says they're not a christian anymore and people right. you know it, it really shakes people they're like oh is any of it real it's so and so you know right, this is right, a Christian right. anymore? and it's like well what were you what were you thinking i mean this person was like a 20 year old basically a kid when you were listening to them <laughs> you know get up there and play the drums they never claimed to be you know a theologian on par on par with Augustine, but right. you know, I think people people's expectations can be kind of crazy, and like you said, our obsession with celebrity probably doesn't help at all either. Mm-hmm. So, just to wrap things up, you've shared a little bit about what we can expect from you in the future with the movie that you're working on. Is there anything else that you have in the works? Uh, what are you hoping for when hopefully someday COVID will be over? What are you hoping to do then? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh well, hoping to tour again. There's a connection that happens when you release an album and then you you play that new album live in front of people that have been listening to it. There's a really cool connection that happens. And um I've kind of been missing that. So I'm looking forward to that hopefully post COVID. And even before that, I do foresee in the near future releasing more music. So that uh, my last Keeper of Days was five year. there was five years in between albums. I don't, I'm not going to take another five years, I know that for sure. I I might release, whether it's another album, probably another album, but at least another set of songs in 2021 this year. So I'm just in a good rhythm here, writing-wise, my mornings are very sacred, I'm home, and uh, and I've just, a lot's coming out, so...
2: Yeah, well, so. we have something to look forward to in 2021. Yeah. Anything yeah. we can look forward to to encourage us right now is a good thing. So, yeah. well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk of with course. me. And I hope our discussion is a blessing to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I hope so, too.
2: I need to know there is
0: justice, that it will roll in abundance, and that you're building a city where we arrive at sin,
1: Pleasure to speak with John. His latest effort, Keeper of Days, is available for digital streaming of both the audio and visual album. You can also visit the site JohnGaraMusic.com for tour dates, merchandise, and other information. Of course, we all look forward to the end of the COVID pandemic when we can actually go to concerts again. The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come," and let the one who hears say, "Come," and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Have a great week.
0: Is there a way to love always? Living in enemy hallways. Don't know my foes from my friends and don't know my friends anymore. Power has several prizes. Can come in all sizes. Love has a million disguises, but winning is simply not one.